Hey everybody and welcome back to Six Impossible Things Before Breakfast. This is Jackie and I am flying solo today. Um, Elsie had some stuff going on. I've had some stuff going on so we had to just record separately. If you hear snipples and sneezes, I am super sorry. My cat Cooper is sick and he's in here with me because he was crying at the door when I tried to lock him out and that just felt mean so I brought him in here with me. Um, he's just got a little bit of a cold, so I apologize in advance if you hear him and it's distracting. Um, I've got two stories for you this week, and they're both pretty short, so this is not going to be very long at all. Um, also, it's really weird recording this without Elsie because I feel like I'm speaking into the void, so uh, bear with me as I gather myself here. <laughs> this is my first time recording alone. Okay, so our first story begins sometime around the 12th century in the small village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England. In Old English, it was called Wolfpet because of the numerous wolf pits in the area. Um, it was an agricultural village, so the villagers would dig these huge holes in the ground and throw livestock carcasses in them to bait and trap wolves because there were so many in the area and it was like dangerous to their living livestock. <laughs> um, so one afternoon while people were in the fields reaping, two children, a boy and a girl, appeared near one of the wolf pits. The children were totally disoriented, clothed in a strange material and fashion, speaking gibberish, and last but certainly not least, they had green skin. Um, of course, the local villagers are looking at this like, what the fuck? Because they've never seen anything like this. And can you imagine people in the 12th century seeing somebody with green skin? Like, they were probably so confused. Um, so anyway, the reapers in the field took the children to the home of Sir Richard de Calm. For several days, they refused to eat until one day they discovered some broad beans, which I had to look up what broad beans are. And for the record, they're just fava beans. Um, but they saw the fava beans growing from the ground and decided to give them a try. And they would eat the crap out of those, apparently. And for a while, it was the only thing that they would eat. So they had a weird diet. They had green skin. They would only eat green things like they could not speak the local language. People were just like, what the hell is going on here? So according to local legend, the children lived with Sir Richard for several years. Um, and in that time, they learned to eat a more diversified diet, which in turn led to them losing their sickly green color. Um, but unfortunately, at some point, Sir Richard, you know, being the caretaker of these kids, took them to be baptized. And while the girl was totally fine, the boy came down with an unknown illness and shortly died, um, which is super sad. But the girl who they ended up naming Agnes, she, um, she was doing fine. She ended up thriving. And at, I think she ended up actually getting married to somebody in the village. Like she, she grew to adulthood with these people who saved her. Um, but anyway, she eventually learned to speak English and when her vocabulary got extensive enough to where they could have an actual conversation, Sir Richard like started asking questions like, where did you come from? Like, why are you here? How did you come to be in this place? And, you know, he thought that this would help clear up the sort of mystery surrounding them 
But as it turns out, it actually led to more confusion. And this is supposedly a direct quote from Agnes when she was trying to answer some of Sir Richard's questions. So according to Agnes, she said, We are inhabitants of the land of St. Martin, who is regarded with peculiar veneration in the country which gave us birth. We are ignorant of how we arrived here. We only remember this, that on a certain day, when we were feeding our father's flock in the fields, we heard a great sound such as we now are accustomed to hearing at St. Edmund's when the bells are chiming. And whilst listening to the sound in admiration, we became upon a sudden, as it were, entranced and found ourselves among you in the fields where you were reaping. The sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are contented with the twilight, which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen not far distant from ours and divided from it by a very considerable river. So they have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> um, they were even more confused than when they started. And so it kind of just remained this big mystery. Like, who are these kids? Where did they come from? Um, so my question was, who were the green children of Wolf Pit and did they even exist? So I started digging and there are apparently multiple theories. Some people claim that this story is just, you know, folklore. Nothing more than a fun story about how the kids were aliens or fairies or subterranean dwellers. Other people claim, however, that the children did exist, but that the story became this garbled mishmash of fact and fiction. So, there are actually a few reported accounts of the children in literature. One in William of Newburgh's Historia Rerum Anglicarum, written sometime around 1189, and the other in Ralph of Cogshall's Chronicum Anglicanum, written around 1220. And sorry if I'm totally butchering these words, like, I have no idea. Um, the kids were also mentioned in passing in William Candom's Britannia in 1586, and also in Bishop Francis Godwin's book, The Man in the Moon, which I believe was like just a, a work of fiction, but it did mention the kids in passing. Um, but that book was written around the early 17th century. And in both of those, the Britannia and the man in the moon, um, William of Newburgh's account is cited. So some historians believe that the children were actually Flemish orphans. And I had to look up like, what that meant, like where, what Flemish orphans were. So apparently Flemish people are from Flanders, a region in Belgium, and they speak Dutch. So during this time when the children were found, a large number of Flemish immigrants had lived in a nearby place called Fronham St. Martin. It was separated from Woolpit by the River Lark. Under King Henry II's rule, Flemish immigrants were being persecuted and many were being killed. So it is possible that the children's parents had died and that they fled into Thetford Forest. And because it's such a densely wooded area, the children would probably have described it as being permanently twilight. It's also possible that they fled into one of the many underground mining passages around the area, which of course would have also led to them thinking that they were permanently in twilight. So, um... This theory to me also makes sense because if the children were Flemish, 
they would have probably sounded like they were speaking gibberish to the British folks at the time. And their style of dress would have been different because, you know, different cultures, different things, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, what do you think? Do you think they are aliens? Do you think that they existed? I'd like to hear your thoughts on this if you guys want to email us, because this is something that has fascinated me for a while. It's just kind of a fun little story. So um, I got a lot of this information from Wikipedia, of course. You can Google the Green Children of Woolpit. You'll find that info there. I also got a few of these facts from two different articles. The first one was The Green Children of Woolpit, the 12th century legend of visitors from another world. And that was on ancientorigins.net, written by April Holloway. And the third website I used was The Green Children of Woolpit, from historicuk.com. It's historic-uk.com. And it was written by Ben Johnson. So that is the story of the Green Children of Woolpit. And now I am going to tell you another story. And we're going to totally switch gears here. This one's totally different, but equally pretty interesting. This is the Palace of Depression. So I had no idea that this was a thing. I had never heard of it in my life. I actually found this information the first time on um, Ripley's Believe It or Not website. I was just kind of poking around on there as one does. So not much is known about George Daner or his early years. Born sometime around 1860, his actual date of birth isn't known, um, He claimed that as a young man, he struck it rich during the Klondike gold rush in Alaska, only to lose his entire fortune during the Wall Street crash of 1929 when the banks failed. So down on his luck with only four or seven, it just depends on whose story you're reading, dollars in his pocket, George wasn't sure that he was going to survive. The Great Depression was in full swing, making jobs really hard to come by. And, you know, by this point, George was no spring chicken. Like, he had already established himself in a career, and starting over felt really impossible for him because he just didn't have, like, the skills. Um, So just about when George was about to give up, he was visited in his dreams by an angel, bringing him the solution to all of his problems. George says that the angel guided him to Vineland, New Jersey, where he was told to spend his last four or seven dollars on a piece of land. Now, this land wasn't much to look at. It was just a few acres of swampy, sandy soil filled with busted up old car parts, broken bricks, and other random trash. But as the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and George was sitting on a pile of treasures. (laughs) The angel had a vision for George. He was to build himself a castle out of junk. So with little else to do, George went to work. With the land um, being what it was, it might not have been the most beautiful place in the world, but it was full of squirrels, frogs, rabbits, and fish. So George had plenty to eat from the land and the surrounding trees provided him with plenty of shelter from the elements. And so for the next three years, George worked diligently and deliberately until finally on Christmas day in 1932, his vision was complete. The finished castle was painted in a multitude of bright pastel colors, had 18 spires, archways, an outdoor fireplace, 
and a massive circular door cover, covered in turtle shells. And you guys can actually look this up. There are multiple places where you can see pictures. And I think there's even, if you go to YouTube, there's some like videos of this place. Um, and it's actually pretty cool. So in no time at all, people were flocking from all over to get a peek at George's handiwork. Like this was something that nobody had ever seen before. And he soon began doing tours there and charging guests 25 cents per ticket. And so this attraction became like wildly popular. It was really popular with traveling families because it was a place you could stop for a few hours. Plus it was just, like I said, nobody had ever seen anything like this. And over the years, it brought in over 250,000 people. Um, the tour featured a trip to the knockout room where George claimed he could wipe out all of your terrible memories of the depression with a bowling ball. So essentially, like you would go into this little room and there was kind of like a bench in there and then hanging from a string, he had a bowling ball. <laughs> um, he also made his own music. He had bits of metal hanging from the ceiling and car tires and all kinds of different stuff. And he would drum on them and play music for his guests. He even named one of his pieces, Here Comes the Jersey Devil. Now, not only was George obviously extremely talented, he was extremely humble. And by extremely humble, I mean not humble at all. He was quoted as saying that his castle was the greatest piece of originality ever brought about in the history of man, which I found pretty laughable. <laughs> Because no offense to George, but there's been some pretty great shit throughout history brought on by originality. And while his castle was really awesome, I mean, the the most original piece of originality? I don't know about that. Um, so anyway, George, as you could probably tell, absolutely loved publicity and was willing to do just about anything to receive attention. He made postcards with his face on it, stood in for photo ops with guests, and in 1938, he even paid someone to make a film about his castle called The Fantastic Palace. He claimed to be the most photographed man in the world, and yes, that is an actual direct quote from him. Like I said, humble. So, sorry, I have to get a drink really quick. His penchant for publicity got him into trouble sometimes because it just drove him to do really weird things and tell really weird lives. And so one time he even tried to convince the Smithsonian that the closest point to China through the center of the earth was in Vineland, New Jersey. And the Smithsonian was like, no, George, the closest point is near Pittsburgh. But he like kept arguing with them. And he also at one point tried to offer them his brain like he was like hey smithsonian museum you can have my brain if you want i'm a genius and build castles out of trash and they were like mm, no thanks george but thank you for the offer <laughs> um another time he tried to get the waterman pen company to feature the palace in their ads uh he had a 1904 pen which i think is just like one of theirs that he used at his guest book at the palace. And so people would just sign their names. And because thousands of visitors had used their pen to sign their names in his guest book, he was like, Hey, you should feature me in your ad. And they were like, well, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> um, in 1952, George claimed that agents of the Cuban government robbed him of 1 million pesos that he had won in the Cuban national lottery, which he had not. 
And finally, the nail in the coffin for George came in July of 1956 when Peter Weinberger, a 20-month-old, was kidnapped from his front porch in Westbury Long Island. Police were scrambling to find this little boy and coming up empty-handed. Like, there were weeks-long searches going on for this kid, and they just could not find him. And George decided to take advantage of this by calling up the FBI and claiming that the kidnappers had visited the Palace of Depression And, of course, you know, the FBI took this seriously and came down to investigate, spent weeks searching the land around the palace and in the surrounding areas, only to come up empty-handed. And when they realized that he had fabricated this event, they threw him in prison. And while he was in prison, angry citizens vandalized the palace, and George was forced to rebuild. So... George died reportedly at the age of 104 years old. He had no family to speak of, so the city of Vineland took care of his funeral expenses and purchased him a headstone. But sadly, after his death, um, a fire gutted the palace and the city had to raise it to the ground. Um, The only original portion of the park that remains is the ticket booth. However, the Palace of Depression Restoration Association started raising funds back in, I think, 1998, and the palace has been completely rebuilt and is open for tours. Like, you can still go there. You can Google the Palace of Depression, and they are giving tours. I think even last year in 2020, they were giving tours, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a place that you can go check out if you like these kind of uh, roadside places. I thought it was pretty interesting and had a really quirky backstory, which I love. I just love a, uh, a random character. But yeah, so those are my stories for this week. If you have any questions or you know, any comments, I'd love to hear them. You could email us at six impossible things pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we will see you next time. Bye.